Mr. Mike. Turn me on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are very thankful for the sense of your manifest presence in our midst, that you are faithful to your promise that you said, if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And we need your presence, not just for our individual lives, but for our families, for our community. We want this whole area to be an open heaven, a place of miracles and blessing, a place of breakthroughs and answered prayers. So we come as the people you have assigned and called to minister to your presence, to be here in your presence, ministering to you, saying we love you. We love your presence. And we do sing those songs. uh, They were written by others, but they express our hearts. We trust in our God. Through your unfailing love, we will not be shaken. Uh, There's everything... (laughs) There's everything and anything going on in the lives of the people in this church that would shake them. Things to shake their finances, things that shake their marriages, their friendships, their relationships, their own things that shake them physically with health issues. But we're declaring that our trust is in you. We don't always know how the outcome is going to turn out. We don't always know how the results, but we know you. And we know that you are faithful. We know that you are, your loving kindness is better than life and that your unfailing love is with us. So even as we look at your word today, we come as those who believe that what you have to say in your word has meaning and is powerful in our lives. So we ask even now that you would, you would come and you would show that which is of our own effort and that which is the Spirit. And that we would have the eyes to see today to reject that which is of our own effort. And we would yield to that which is of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been doing this thing all, uh, all of 2015 where we're looking at these genuine signs of the Spirit. Or another way that we've put it is... What does it look like when you have a supernaturally changed heart? Not just that you're moral or religious or whatever, but you actually have a supernaturally changed heart. Here is the manifestation of that heart. And it's found in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, where it lists out these particular characteristics of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a follower of Christ. Now, One of the things I have not mentioned to you that I think you should know is that in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it actually doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. It says singular fruit. So it's actually a package deal. It all fits together. You can't, on the one hand, say, I'm impatient, but I have self-control. You can't say, I have peace, and not at the same time begin to experience a sense of, of, of joy, and rather, you know, to have like depression or despair. 
They all go together. And, and this is, you know, this is evidenced in what Jesus says in John 15, where he talks about the vine and the branches, that the branches in their connection to the vine begin to bear fruit. And if you've ever watched uh, like a, in a vineyard, if you've ever seen grapes, they all tend to ripen at the same time. All the fruit appears, it doesn't appear, you know, here, there, and everywhere. It all comes out at once. Similar with the things of the Spirit. As you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, all of these signs begin to manifest because they, they work with one another. And they are not coming from you. They are coming to you. And the question is, will you resist the Spirit's work or will you yield to the Spirit's work? And none of, the, none of the signs are more difficult than this one today. And my prayer is, is specifically that you will not, as we go through this together, that you will not feel scolded. That you will not just, you will not just feel guilt, but rather that you will honestly see the gap between where you are and where you can be. And you'll begin to yield to the, to the very work of the Spirit in this area. Now, the, the word that's translated that we're looking at today is the word gentleness. But the Greek word actually has about three meanings. And uh, of these meanings, uh, gentleness is certainly one of them. But meekness is another one that is often used, which meekness is a, is, is a descriptor of Jesus. It was a descriptor of Moses. It's a descriptor of Jesus where it said he's the meekest man on earth. And the idea is that with Jesus, you have awesome power, but completely under control. Fully God, yet lived as fully man. See, that, that's meekness. Whenever you get hurt or damaged, and you rise up in the full stature of all your power, you've lost all meekness. I don't know if you've ever done that. Anybody ever made you mad enough? Just you wanted to get up on your tiptoes and beat the daylights out of them, you know, or, or talk the daylights out of them, or, you know, you just wanted to be bigger than all oh, At that moment, you have no meekness. And truthfully, truthfully, at that moment, you've lost all strength. Jesus never did that. You know, some of you have heard this before where it talks about on the cross that he could have easily called the angels down. But he's also the one, you know, to turn water into wine and he's the one who actually parted the Red Sea and all he had to do was speak. But he always kept that under wraps. He always kept that under control for the glory of God. So really what we're talking about is humility. See, when we talk about gentleness, we're not talking about somebody who is a pushover and who just, you know, never ever notices that they're getting beat up. We're not talking simply about someone where meekness is weakness. We're actually talking about true humility. And there's no better place to to look for true humility than in Philippians chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you to read with me where it really expresses the true humility of Jesus. So let's, let's read this together. 
Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, huh? It's an awesome passage. Now, it is probably one of the greatest passages on the humility of Jesus. It's also one of the more controversial passages. On, on one hand, you have this awesome final declaration that at the name of Jesus, every knee involuntarily will bow. Right now, you're, you're here in this room being able to voluntarily bow. The day will come where the proud and the humble will bow. Not because they will be made to, but because they'll actually see what we're beginning to see. Because once you see glory, you can't unsee it. Once you've seen beauty, you can't forget it. And to see Jesus in His glory and His beauty, now by faith, but then by sight. Every knee will bow. And if you look throughout the scriptures, anytime even the angels show up, (laughs) people fall down like dead people. So when Jesus shows up, the ascended, glorified Jesus, they will be dead people. (laughs) All right? They will not, they will not, I mean, they won't, their skin will not protect them. Why it's beautiful when you begin to realize we have this opportunity for every, every person now to do it voluntarily. Truthfully, my prayer for Rockland County is that every single person would come to understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And everyone would come to see him as he is. From our, our irreligious neighbors to our religious neighbors to every single person would come to know Jesus as he really is. That we could say Jesus loves you and people would fall. Because it would be so powerful, his presence. Well, the issue of humility is really the issue of pride. 
And basically what Paul is saying here is that pride is the sickness that everyone suffers from. And he he explains it in this way. The whole of chapter 2 is him instructing the community on how to be a unified community. He has to instruct them to be a unified community because they are not a unified community. The reason that he says if there's any of this or any of that, any love, any, any sense of purpose, any one mind, any of this, if there's any, because right now they're not showing any of that. What they're showing is they're showing their own drive, ambitions, agendas, and desires, and they're conflicting with one another. And so Paul is saying the sickness is not merely something that we, we learn conflict resolution about. Is a heart sickness. So, so, I mean, I love conflict resolution, and I teach it, and I, I've learned about it because I am a conflict waiting to happen, so I had to learn. You know, and every marriage, you, ha- you deal with conflict. You get two people together. One of the first things I do in premarital is, is take people through how do we deal with conflicts, how do you resolve them in your family, all of this. It's important. But here's the picture I have. Every year, during certain seasons, I get a cold. Maybe some of you do as well, okay? When, when I get a cold, I run to the store, and I get Claritin, and I get Mucinex. And I like them both. I don't get paid to say this at all. Okay, I like them both. I, I take a Claritin, I take Mucinex, and I feel better. Okay, but all it does is deal with symptoms, I mean, I, it's much better to have the symptoms dealt with than just to live without them. But if you could give me something that took away colds, I would forget Claritin. I would forget Mucinex. I'd go for that. And in some ways, what we've all done is we've all tried to figure out how to have these antihistamines of conflict, these decongestants of conflict, when we have the opportunity to get rid of the root of the conflict. And we keep buying the antihistamines. Because the root is pride. The sickness is pride. And as little as we like to admit it, we don't want to get rid of that sickness. We want people to think we're humble... Because humility is, one, one writer says, humility is the shyest of virtues. So if I were to come to Dale, and I, I, I believe Dale is a humble woman in, many, in so many ways, and she has humility, and I come to Dale and I say, Dale, tell me the secret of your humility. And then she tells me, and I say, well, that's no good because you think you're humble. I've got to find somebody else. You see, once you express your humility, then your humility is pretty much canceled. <laughs> you, you tracking with me on that? The minute you say, man, I am humble, is the minute you are not humble. You're taking pride in your humility. <laughs> this is why this is such a classic sickness. It's elusive. And when you go at it directly, you don't get it. You don't get it. So, Paul says you got to go after the pride. 
You don't go after the humility. You go after the pride. So what does he say? He uses two words. He says, something's wrong with our heart, and what's wrong is he calls it selfish ambition and vainglory. Now, selfish ambition is somewhat self-explanatory. It's basically any drive that you have, any agenda that you have, any wish that you have, any wants or longings that you have that are basically based in nothing but self. So when you, when you think about being a unified community, whether that's a church, a family, or work, or whatever it is, and all of us are operating on selfish ambition, then none of us really care for the other except for what you can do to realize my ambition. So you're, you're the star, I'm the star, she's the star, he's the star, all of us are the stars of, the, of this program, and none of us are here to support the other. Because it's all about me. It's about me achieving what I want to achieve. And, and so often, romance, friendship, and even business relationships are only about what do you bring for me? And it's expressed in a phrase that many people know very well, and it is this phrase, what have you done for me lately? That's selfish ambition, and, and it's, it's, it's the sickness of pride. Paul says, this has got to be approached, and you and I have to start getting honest about this. That you and I are filled with, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we're filled with desires that we think other people are supposed to fulfill. And many of us, even we tack religion onto that, and we begin to think God is the Coke machine who's supposed to dispense what I need, what I want. If I just say it right, do it right, get myself in alignment, then he's supposed to do what I want him to do. And so even God becomes only important to me as long as he brings me what I want to get where I want to go. This is selfish ambition. This is why many people stop praying. It's because God will not dispense, he will not resource your dysfunction. And he will, this is idolatry of self. And he will not let you pray to another God and answer for you. And so selfish ambition, Paul says, you have to go after that. And he says, very clearly says, it begins to manifest when people say no to you. Now, I've learned this over the years. I, I grew up in a very strong culture of charm. Everything was surface. You never knew what people were thinking in your face. You only knew later when they told everybody else. And there's something about a charming culture that is incredibly deceptive because it's cordial, it's polite, it looks very nice, but then tell that person no and you'll see well how far the charm goes. Tell them no. No, I'm not going to do that. Even when you could do it, just to see how they will respond. And immediately you will see, this is not God, this is self. Because what comes out of their mouth will not be godly. When they call everybody else on the phone, can you believe he said that to me? Well, where does that come from? Where does this hiddenness and this deceptiveness and this whatever it takes to get my ambition realized, where does that come from? 
Well, it comes from this thing called vain glory or vain conceit. This is really the essence. The, the self amb- selfish ambition is nothing more than symptom. The root issue of your pride and my pride is this thing that Paul calls vain conceit or vain glory. It is a single Greek word. It's not two words. It's just one word. And what it literally means is that you, ha- you are empty of glory. You are empty of glory. And that emptiness of glory makes you hungry for glory. It manifests in some very negative speech within inside yourself. Whether you are even conscious of this speech. But we grow up going, do I count? Do I matter? And our normal, our normal way of responding to the world, because you cannot go through life without rejection. Or without hearing no. Or without hearing, you know feeling or experiencing disappointment. And so our normal speech within inside of ourself is, I don't matter. I don't count. But you were made to count. You were made to matter. As a matter of fact, the original design of your body was it would get better, it would get more beautiful, it would get stronger. The original design was that it would last forever. So you have a capacity for glory that has never been fulfilled or filled. But you have a remembrance of when it could be. Because God left memory traces of what we were supposed to be. So many of these longings for glory, they are, they are remembrances of the original design. But the problem is that apart from God and because of the curse of sin... The way that we try to fill the hole only makes the hole worse. So, in many ways, you might even say that the worst possible outcome in life is not that you would be hated, but that you'd be ignored. Or that you'd be forgotten. Well, when people feel unimportant, they choose to fight. That's what Paul's talking about. They begin to fight. I, I had this experience where we had numerous people coming to church who were in physically abusive marriages. And, I, and they, were, they were making a situation where I had to meet with the abusive husbands. Now, this is always really wonderful when a husband has to meet with a pastor and doesn't want to meet with a pastor. It's always the greatest healing moment, you know. It's, it's a moment of mutual... Terror, terror, you know, and stuff. And so I began to study and because and I, I wanted to understand what, what is going on with the abusers. Why would you do this to someone you say that you love? And what I found was fascinating. The abusers, to the highest percentage, believed themselves to be unimportant, inferior, and powerless. I thought it would be the opposite. I thought they would be beating on people because they feel so powerful. But they actually beat on the woman because they feel so powerless. Because they feel unimportant, they use the only thing they have in their temper tantrums, which is their body. And what I found that was so fascinating is that most of us do not have any idea about equality. 
we constantly either gravitate to superiority or inferiority. Never realizing that the only way we'll ever know love and the only way we'll ever experience love is to, in humility, realize you're equal of anybody. And because in Christ you have been, you have been chosen, you have been, you've been given a new identity, you are his treasure. You never have to believe the lie that you're inferior or that you're superior. Matter of fact, the gospel is that we're all equals. Equal in need, equally in need of a Savior. Equally sinners. Equally worthy of death. And yet here is Jesus who says equally, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Knocks on the door of every heart and he says, if you'll open the door, I'll come in and I'll have dinner with you and I'll have fellowship with you. So this thing of pride is actually probably the one sin that will damn you for eternity. Because in saying, I need to, I need to count, I, I, I got to have my glory satisfied, it will leave you in sort of an independent, non, non-dependent, in a sense, on the very glory of God. Unwilling to accept forgiveness because you're unwilling to believe you need forgiveness. Unwilling to... Come under grace because you would have to admit that you need grace. So really and truly, humility is the path to salvation. No one expresses faith in God without having humbled themselves and recognized their status as a sinner. So humility, in the end, is the sin that will punish for eternity. Or the pride is the sin in the end that punishes for eternity. Intellectual pride, spiritual pride, religious pride, personal pride, whatever it is, family pride, whatever we count on to fill the glory hole that is not God's glory. Now, the beauty is that when you turn and everything, you begin to say, I, I, can't, I can't get to God on my own. I can't get to heaven on my own. I want a relationship with God that is meaningful and intimate and you humble yourself, he gives you everything he is. And he gives you everything he has. He's been waiting for that day for you to say, you need him. And here's the beauty of it, friends, is he didn't didn't bring you into relationship with him just so you could survive. He brought you into relationship so you would thrive. And the thing that's keeping you from thriving is your pride. Now, one, one more thing I want to say about humility. In the Bible, it's, it says humility 270 times. If God says something 270 times, he is tending to want your attention to it. Now, it's important that you recognize that our culture is, is more and more influenced by Greek philosophy, not biblical philosophy. And the Greek philosophers hated humility. They did not see humility as a virtue. They saw it as a weakness. Because in their mind, humility had to do with gentleness. 
It had to do with meekness, like I told you before, and it had to do with deferring or having deference for the needs of others over your own. They equated that with their slaves. They said humility is for slaves, not for the nobility. And so they relegated all ideas of gentleness, humility, and meekness to their slaves, which is almost perfect because what did Paul do? He said, Jesus, who very, is the very God of very God, did not think equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. So, I mean, a part of my message today for you is this, that the trajectory of your life must imitate the trajectory of your Savior's life. That in order to go up, you have to go down. That without, without that, you're nothing but a prideful, religious, moralist who's bankrupt. Now, here's the issue. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is one of the great theologians of all time. And he talked about the enemy of our spiritual growth being pride. And what he explained is that it manifests in the Christian in four ways. And then humility manifests in four ways, opposite of this. But one of them, he says, the, the manifestation of pride gives you a drivenness. Because of the emptiness of the glory in your soul, there is a competitiveness that drives you uh, by that inner vacuum that you have to be filled up with glory. So what happens is that pride actually gives you no pleasure whatsoever in what you have unless you compare it to somebody else's and you have more than they have. This is the keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. Oh, no. That was intentional. Now, the, the way that this manifests is because you have to understand that humility begins to take hold of what you have already and begins to say, my identity, my resources, the source of my life and my satisfaction and the, my fulfillment, in those areas, I am absolutely content. But see, if you are still trying to fill that glory void with things of this world, you will never be content. You'll never have enough. They'll always, have any of you ever noticed that as soon as even your salary got to a place that you thought would be an awesome place to have a salary, <laughs> immediately you either are with someone who has double that or it's now 20 years later and it's still not enough. I mean, when I graduated from college, this is how old I am. When I graduated from college, I couldn't wait to make $10,000 a year. Even in Mississippi, you can't live on $10,000 a year, you know. It's never enough. Until you begin to say, what I have that is certain is enough. Now, the second thing that, that he says manifest, and again, this is, what happens is, in your own void, you begin to look at everybody else and can't even focus on yourself. 
So what happens is you treat others with contempt and, and you're putting them down so as to put yourself up. Now, you could, even, you could even make this very spiritualized and religious and say, well, I'm just trying to prevent the church from heretics. Or I'm just trying to keep the church pure. No, you're just trying to put yourself up. Because it, the Bible's so interesting, it says, even when they are in the worst of sin, you're to deal with them with gentleness. And then it says, be careful, because the very thing you're attacking in them becomes true of you. Why is that? Because somehow we don't take seriously that when we operate in pride, God says he opposes us. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, in some ways this expresses itself, this pride begins to express itself in a willfulness where spiritually prideful people are absolutely sure they're right and the only thing they care about is being right. I grew up in that church. I was a part of it. Because in many ways, we were alone. We were a small group. And we were, we were convinced we were right. We were messed up, dysfunctional. It was a horrible, awful, unhealthy church. But we were right. And so we would say, it's okay we're awful, terrible, dysfunctional. Because we're right. That, that is how deceptive pride is. And it begins to express itself. If you're here and you go, we're the only right church, you are messed up. The CMA does not save anybody. The Alliance Church has never saved anybody. Jesus is the only Savior. And those of you who come from a very strong Roman Catholic background where where basically you were taught the church saved you, that church never saved anybody. Matter of fact, many of our churches get in the way of people being saved. Because it's pride. There's only one Savior, and it's not any church. And there's not a one of us who has any of this perfectly. We all see in a glass darkly, Paul said. But when we see him, we will see face to face, and we will know as we've been known. Well, the last one... And this, this one, I'm asking you to be a little bit advanced to understand this. Because what happens is there's a process where actually God is trying to move you to the place where you're no longer conscious of yourself. Now by that, I don't mean that you have all kind of unconscious motives and you're driven by things that are out of your control. But, there, but what he's trying to move you to a place where you realize that you are so full of glory that you don't have to go grabbing for glory. That you begin to realize, I am taken care of. See, I believe without humility, there is no trust. Because you can't, you can't let yourself surrender to someone else till you are humble enough to say, I need this and I can trust this. And when you can say that in humility, then you can go as far as Jesus will take you. Now, here's why I believe you don't have to be so conscious of yourself anymore. When Jesus went to the cross, 
He took the treatment that you and I deserved and he experienced the fullness of that treatment so that now you and I can experience the fullness of the treatment he deserves. See, I deserved death. I deserved the wrath of God. I deserved punishment. Jesus took all of that deserved treatment on himself for my sake. Now, that's done. Now, I am receiving all the treatment He deserves. All the glory, all the love, all the blessing of the Father. Everything that Jesus has earned is now mine by faith. And all I have to do is humble myself and say, this is what I want. I want what Jesus has for me. And it's in, that, it's in this interesting thing that by dying to self, I am risen to the life I always wanted to have. The picture is expressed very, very plainly in this passage. Jesus being obedient to the point of death. It says, now God has exalted him with a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will will express. I have this confidence that if you will bow down in humility, that you will be raised up in glory. And that instead of being empty of glory, you will be filled with glory. What we'd like to ask you to do, if this is meaningful to you today, what I've been sharing, and I think the Spirit of the Lord is here so powerfully. Like I can see, I'm having visions of many of you standing in front of your mirrors and and having had this voice say to you, you don't count, you have no glory, you don't matter, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, people don't like you enough. And, And whether you literally heard that voice, it was there pushing you, driving you. I'm saying today is the day to get rid of every other voice but the voice of Jesus. Today is the day to humble yourself and take hold of the glory that is his, that is now for you. And I'd like you to do that in form of a prayer. And I'd like you to make that commitment with one of our prayer people this morning. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray over us. And then we're just going to end the service. Gabe's probably going to keep a little music going. But I'm going to invite you to come and make a commitment today to say, I want to humble myself. The Bible didn't say pray for humility. It says, humble yourself. So it's something you can do, and it's something for you to do. If you're sick and tired of a life that doesn't work, then then pride needs to be dealt with. Jesus made himself of no reputation so that he could give all of himself to you, so he could raise you up. Will you give all of yourself to him today? Lord, We come against pride. We strike a blow against it in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're tired of not growing. We're tired of being in fights. We're tired of being in conflicts. We want what Jesus has for us. We want all of it. We want all that you have for us this day. We don't want anything to keep us back. Not the sickness of pride. We want to walk in humility. And as a church to walk in humility. And we point not to ourselves. (laughs) We have no secret of humility. But we have a Savior. And we can point to Him. And point to the humility of Jesus. 
that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And we can point to Jesus, the, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we don't, have to, we don't have to initiate our life. We just respond to his life. We don't have to become more humble. We just receive his humility and fullness. Thank you for this grace, oh God. Thank you that we are not condemned by the message, but we are lifted up because we are men and women of faith. And we are humbling our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. May you have an incredible week. I just invite you, would you come and and just make a commitment to humility today to step into this moment.